journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shavua Tov and welcome to another episode of A Trip of a Lifetime. We, You are with Adol Kazilski. Um, hope you had a fantastic weekend. I know in Johannesburg the weather has been absolutely beautiful. I love, love, love the, water, the autumn kind of winter uh, weather where it's dry and the sun is fantastic and lovely to sit outside. We are going to continue our trip through the Bible. We are now on Genesis chapter 20. And today, you know, there are times that we land up doing just one verse. We are going to actually now do an entire chapter, um, a very, very interesting one. And if you have been following our podcasts and um, the teachings that we've been going through, we've been kind of the, the lens of the Bible has been zooming between things that have been happening with Abraham and then jumping to Lot and then back to Abraham and then back to Lot. Uh, last time we left on the fact that Lot got inebriated in the cave and he fathered two very big nations, the nations of Moab and Amnon. We are now zooming back to where Abraham is living. And truthfully, we never, ever, ever hear again about Lot. Um, that is the end of him, though the two nations that he does father, particularly the um, nation of Moab, does come up and plays a significant role in Jewish history much, much later. Insofar as, as mentioned before, Moab was the great, 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 great grandfather of Ruth, um, the famous Ruth, um, the daughter-in-law who chooses to go back to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi. The famous words, where you go, I go, your people shall be my people, where you die, I die, etc., and Ruth is the great, great, is the great grandmother of King David. And from King David, we are going to actually now with the arrival of Mashiach, one of the credentials of Mashiach is that he is going to have to prove his lineage through David. So what happened with Lot was not insignificant. We discussed it at length. Please feel free to go back um, onto the podcast on the High FM website. And you can pick up a whole discussion about the birth of Moab. As always, you're most welcome to SMS on 34519. They will be able to tell me um, any messages that do come through, um, since we are all still, interestingly, uh, giving this, this, uh, this radio talk via remote um, which is actually still quite, quite incredible. All right, so let's take the lens of the Bible and shift it back now to Abraham. Abraham was sitting in the city of Hebron, okay, um, when all this debacle happened with Lot and also happened with, um, with the, dis- the, the, the destruction of Storm and Gomorrah. And now we're going to see that he actually picks up and he semi semigrates. Not he doesn't emigrate at all. He doesn't leave the land of Israel, but he does move shop. So if anybody is following in, chapter twenty, verse one. Vayisa Misham Abraham. So Abraham travels from there. He migrates from the city of Hebron 
Outsa HaNegev. He goes to the land of the Negev, which we know today as the Negev Desert. And for those that know Israel's uh, topography, we know which reason, re- region he is traveling around in. Sodom and Gomorrah is the region of the Dead Sea. And that, we know that Hebron isn't too far away. And we know that the Negev um, is also sitting in the south south part of the country. So he migrates and he goes to the land of Negev. Exactly where does he go? Vayeshef ben Kadesh ben Shur. He goes and he settles in a place that is found between one area called Kadesh and the other called Shur. Vayagar begrar. And he settles down now in the city of Grar. G-E-R-A-R. I think you would be able to, uh, translate it in, in, or spell it out in English. In the city of Grar. So the first question that we need to ask ourselves is, well, why did you migrate? Why, why, why do you have to move? Like everybody knows that immigration, migration, moving houses is really a, a, a big, big thing and pretty unsettling. Why do you voluntarily get up and choose to move when in fact he was sitting there quite comfortable um, in Hebron, in the house of his good friend Mamre. Well, the Torah gives us two reasons for this. Firstly, we are told that the great catastrophe that occurred in the cities on the plain, the storm and Gomorrah, um, that, that got completely destroyed, discouraged wayfarers now from passing through Hebron. Now, one of the things that we know much about our forefather, Abraham, was that he he was a hotelier par excellence. His mitzvah of hachnasat orchim, of inviting guests, was the mitzvah that, that he toiled in the most. And he couldn't survive without having guests now that the, the wayfarers weren't moving, weren't traveling through Hebron. So he moved to another city where he would be able to extend um, hospitality to, stra- to strangers. Now, this in and of itself actually um, opens up a very, very interesting discussion. And that is something that we obviously learn from him and something that we need to employ in our day-to-day life. And that is is that it's not good enough for a person to do good deeds only when the opportunity arises. You know, that's really, really easy. If you're sitting at home and the doorbell rings and it's somebody poor at your door and you go to your cupboard, take out some cans of food or take out some money from your wallet and you go to the door and you give them money to feed the poor, well, yes, definitely you've done a mitzvah. But that mitzvah came to you. If that person hadn't rung the doorbell, you'd still sit pretty in your house, minding your own business. Judaism is not a passive religion. It's rather an active religion. And it demands that we go and go over and above what's needed and look for opportunities for us to do. And really, now that in this time period, this difficult time period of the quarantine, um, certainly we should, as a community, do a shout-out to all the wonderful people out there, many in the Jewish community, particularly on the Job of Jewish Moms, that, that infamous and famous uh, uh, Facebook 
um, group of people um, that are doing incredible things. There's also people on the residential groups that have come together and instead of just saying, well, you know, it's okay right now, I've got food on my table and I've got enough money in my bank to help me survive this, um, they have in fact extended and gone and looked for the opportunity to go out and drop food packages and clothing and and medicine and all sorts of things to those people who are less fortunate than, than ourselves and never actually, those people never asked for any assistance. So first of all, Yashakaya Chazaku Barucha, well done. And a great, great, um, uh, a, a show of appreciation for all of those that have gone out. Where do we get it from? We get it from Abraham. Abraham says you cannot sit at home and wait for opportunity to knock, but rather you should go out and look for that opportunity. And that was his modus operandi, and it is a fundamental in Judaism. We see this also um, applied to all mitzvahs, and I'll give you another example. There is an example. There is a, there is a, a, a mitzvah in the Torah that we know, called the mitzvah of tzitzit. Those are the fringes that one sees on an orthodox Jewish man, the four-cornered garment that has the, the strings attached to it. Now, the basic, basic mitzvah is that one earn, must only wear tzitzit if he's wearing a four-cornered garment. If there is, technically, if one doesn't have four corners, then you are technically exempt from the mitzvah. But because it is a mitzvah in the Torah and because it has such unbelievable reward and protection, what one does is one purposely puts on a four-cornered garment in order to fulfill the mitzvah of tzitzit. So we know that as soon as a child turns uh, three years old and uh, he has his optionist. The one thing that we start training a, a little boy is in the mitzvah of tzitzit. Now, maybe his shirts and his vests and everything else that he wears doesn't have four corners, but we purposefully put on four corners because we go out to look for a mitzvah um, and not wait for the opportunity to present it. Uh, we're going to go for a little bit of an ad break now. When I get back, I will tell you one where... I got a little bit caught um, and uh, had to re redo and, and realign things in order that um, I should be careful with the four corners. But let's go to the break, and I will tell you that right after. Hi, FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back, and this is Robertson Adel Kozulski. This is 101.9 High FM, and we are journeying through the Bible, and we are learning the Pasha of Vayera. We're on chapter 20, and we were discussing the fact that Abraham moved in order so that he could avail himself um, to fulfill the mitzvah of Hachnasat Orchim, of, um, of, of visiting and having guests, of entertaining guests, simply because his business had, so to speak, closed down since no more wayfarers were moving in Hebron. And we were discussing the fact that as a Jew, we should go out and look for opportunities to fulfill mitzvahs, not wait for those mitzvahs to come to us. 
So one of the things we were chatting about was the technical example of tzitzit, where technically if your garment doesn't have four corners, you are not obligated in the mitzvah of tzitzit. But because we want to fulfill the mitzvah, Jewish men from the age of three onwards make sure that they put on the tzitzit. Now, just as a caveat, I'm going to move a little side and come back to this. Um, if any of you out there are questioning why do women not wear tzitzit, well, tzitzit is a mitzvah that is zmanj grama. It's a mitzvah that is connected with time, meaning that the mitzvah of tzitzit is to wear it from daylight, from the time that, that one can see until nightfall. Now, many, many people um, take this mitzvah even greater and make sure that they wear tzitzit 24-7. Um, they don't only wear it during the daylight hours, but again, technically, um, from a halachic perspective, um, a man does not have to wear tzitzit at night. It probably is also practically bothersome to take it on and take it off or put it on and put it off depending on the daylight. So men keep it on 24-7. Some even sleep with it the entire night. Why do women not, not, not keep the mitzvah of tzitzit? It's because it's a mitzvah that is connected with a time. And if a mitzvah is connected to a time frame, then a woman is exempt from that mitzvah. This is an entire discussion in and of itself. But women are exempt from all time-bound mitzvahs, except for certain of them, like Shabbat, which is obviously a time-bound one. It's on the seventh day of the week. But the majority of, of time-bound mitzvot um, are not are not obligatory on women, like tzitzit, like tefillin, etc. Why, you may ask, in a very, very short summary, um, essentially a woman, all the mitzvahs that are connected to time um, is there to remind men about time because men do not have an internal clock. A woman does. Um, by virtue of the menstrual cycle that a woman goes through and by virtue of her bina yatera, her sixth sense, a woman is very, very much connected with time, with God, um, she doesn't have to stop in her day to be reminded that there's a God. Um, it is a very much um, internalized in a woman's being. And therefore, when it comes to these time-bound mitzvahs, women do not take do them simply because they're not obligated in them. Could women um, do these mitzvahs? Technically, yes, but it is an accepted practice that women do not do them because there are other uh, practicalities that need to be taken into account in performing certain of the mitzvahs. Again, this is a subject in and of itself, a deviation somewhat, but just to put it a little bit in perspective. So let's go back to the four-cornered garments that I was talking about. Um, and just to tell you a pickle that I got myself into, I was with um, my my family in Thailand in December, and um, I was thinking, I was looking for a gift that I could bring back to my grandchildren. And for all of you who have been to Thailand, you know that on the beach you have these uh, these these um, guys that come and sell a whole lot of stuff on the beach, and they sell these shirts, these pure cotton shirts that uh, people put on when they come to the beach and after they've swum, just to give a little bit more covering to the body. 
Um, and I thought, oh, that would be a great idea. I'm going to buy these shirts and longer dresses for, for, for my grandchildren. Um, it would be nice when, 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 you know, when they come out of the pool that they put it on or when they come to the pool, they put it on, etc. So anyway, I purchased them and when I came home and I was unpacking them before I was about to give it to them, I realized that what I had done, in fact, was bought four cornered garments. For anybody who's bought such a shirt on the beach, go have a look at it. It's, it's exactly four cornered. It is a shirt that has got two slits up on either side and the, the, the four corners are actually four corners, which meant that if I gave them to my grandchildren, they would then be obligated in the mitzvah of tzitzis. So how do you go about that? Because I certainly didn't go put on tzitzis on, 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 on these, uh, on these shirts. Um, I took them to my niece, who's a dressmaker, and I asked her to cut off or to round round one of the corners, meaning she took one corner of this garment, and instead of leaving it as a square, she rounded it off, which then made um, this garment invalid. It was no longer four-cornered, but three-cornered with a circle <laughs> with a round little part on the one side. And then my grandchildren could wear it without the mitzvah of tzitzit. Um, interestingly, if you ever want to notice, um, certainly in uh, South Africa, one if one looks at anybody who belongs to the Chabad movement, the Lubavitch movement, you know that the men wear these kapotas, these long black coats on Shabbat. Next time you meet a, a Chabadnik in the street, um, try and do it as politely as possible, but look at them from the, from behind, and you will see that their 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 kapotas are made of two panels um, that come down from the waist down. It's really two panels, and there really are four corners. But if you look very very carefully, you will see there also that one corner is in fact rounded off, because if not, that would also um, would obligate them in the mitzvah of tzitzis. But having said all of that, let's go back to our original story of Abraham and um, in understanding again that Abraham moved because he, he, he wanted to actively pursue good deeds and when people stopped passing by his house, he couldn't, he couldn't eat himself without eating guests. So this is how we know where he went. Um, he went to a city where people had no pity on the poor and it would then grant him the maximum um, ability there to teach the populace how to be charitable. And how do we learn that? We look at the verse again. Vayisa misham Abraham. Abraham traveled from there, means he left Hebron. He went into the Negev. And the rabbis go and say that Negev means dry. It comes from the word Nagav, which has the same meaning. Meaning that he went to a land which was dry both physically, as we know the Negev desert. It was dry physically, but it also was dry spiritually. Why? Because it was a spiritual wasteland where people did not do good deeds and they did not help each other. And so Abraham chose he went outside Negev, he went to a place that was spiritually dry because he wanted to be able to teach the people how to do, how to be charitable and how to 
be kind. Also remember he was a, an extremely wealthy guy and he wanted, he saw this as a divine sign that he should be sharing his wealth. Another great lesson for all of us out there. And so that's why he moved to this place. The second reason why he moved was that everyone in the area knew about the terrible thing that happened with Lot and his daughters um, and that they thought that the world had come to an end and they committed incest, etc. And we know that Lot had a similarity to Abram and, and people had always um, muddled them up. In fact, going back a few chapters that we have, we have learned already, um, going back to the chapter where Abraham says to Lot, listen, we can't live together. You go your way, I go mine. And that is when Lot actually decides to go to the fertile land of Sodom and Gomorrah um, because Abraham wanted to, to separate themselves because of reputation. So here again, living in the city of Hebron was just way too close to Storm and Gomorrah and to where Lot was living and he didn't want um, anybody to think that God forbid it was him that had committed such a base act and so even though he had lived in Hebron for 25 years he decided to leave and avoid rumors that he himself had committed the sin. So he lands up in a place called Gerar Okay, which is in the Philistine ter- territory, and it is a place where, where, um, where, 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 um, Avi Melech, the king of Grar, is living. Okay, so he arrives there, but there's a whole lot of story that the verse isn't telling us. And that is, is that again, just like when he went to Pharaoh, Abraham said to Sarah, Listen, you're a beautiful woman and an extraordinarily exquisite woman. Um, if I say that I am your husband, they will kill me and take you. That seems to be the modus operandi. And so um, he didn't want that to happen. And again, he goes into the agreement with Sarah that both him and Sarah will play the the the, the pretense that they are brother and sister, not husband and wife. So by Yomi Abraham El Sarah Ishto, Abraham says to Sarah, his wife, Achotihi, um, she is my sister. And as soon as they walk into the town, um, no, they didn't need Skype and they didn't need cell phone connectivity. Um, the, the word spread very quickly through the town that a most beautiful, beautiful woman has come into the town. Um, with her brother, and this gets goes to the ears of Abimelech, who is the king of Gvar. So what happens is, by Yishlach Abimelech, Melech Gvar, by Yikach Etzara, he sends for he sends for Sarah. Um, now he brings Sarah into the palace, and once again it's déjà vu for Sarah. She is now incarcerated in a place with a pretty uh, in a pretty nasty situation and she starts crying and davening to God to um, relieve her or assist her in the situation. And it says that an angel came to Sarah that night, calmed her down and said, don't be afraid. I, I am looking, I'm looking after you. Now, obviously Abimelech's intentions were bad. Um, he 
he he was obviously um, going to perform illicit relations with Sarah, um, but before he even came close, Avi Melech and his entire household was stricken with a terrible malady, and the Midrash tells us that every opening in their bodies were closed up. So their mouths closed up, their ears, their nostrils, their eyes, all the other orifices, and they were they were stricken um, in being deaf, dumb, and blind. And if that wasn't bad enough, a second malady also affected them. They got a terrible skin rash known as Ra'atan. This was the same skin rash, same plague that struck Paroi. Uh, we discussed that in Parshat Lech Lecha. You can go back and listen to it. And a third malady, a third strike, struck not only uh, the house and the palace of Paroi, but the city of Grar, that another a number of women were in the midst of giving birth, and suddenly it became impossible for them to deliver. And so the labor pains continued. It caused tremendous suffering. We're told that this third malady even affected the livestock, and even the chicken stopped laying eggs as long as Sarah was in the palace. So just imagine the scene. Okay, this woman comes into town. Avi Melech, so to speak, abducts her, brings her to the palace. And by the time nightfall happens, there is absolute chaos in the city of Grar. Um, the people in the palace become deaf, dumb, and blind. They get stricken with this malady. People are trying to give birth. They cannot. Um, and Sarah is sitting in a room locked up by herself, crying and weeping. And this Avi Melech does not know what hits him. And there he's sitting that night. And in verse 3, we read the following. Vayavoy Elohim el Avi Melech v'chalom halayla. God comes to Avi Melech in a dream at night. Vayomer lo, and God says to him, Hinach meis ala isha ashelakachta vihi be'ulat ba'al. Behold, you are about to die because of the woman you took, for she is a married woman. Now, really, in truth, there was some vindication for Avimelech, because he didn't know he had taken a married woman and he was about to commit adultery with her. He thought he was taking a, a virgin, so to speak, somebody untouched, just simply the sister of another guy. Abimelech had not come come near her. He hadn't touched her because before he even managed to come close to her, this all these plagues had descended on his palace. By Yomar, and so he says to God, Adonai Hagoy God, do you also kill innocent nations? His insinuation here, Abimelech was, listen, I've heard about you you Dear great God, I've heard how, I've heard about the great flood and how you meted out punishment there. I've heard what you've done to the Tower of Babel. I even know what happened now with Sodom and Gomorrah. So now are you going to come and destroy us as well? But in truth, we are an innocent nation, meaning I haven't done anything. You're, go- you're telling me I'm about to die because I'm about to touch a married woman, but I really haven't touched her. So are you going to be um, so punitive that you're going to destroy this nation as well, and they're they're all innocent. And he says further to God, Haloi hu amali achotihi, vegam vehigam he amra achihu. And furthermore, he says to God, 
are you a going to destroy the nation? And furthermore, it's in a sense, it's not my fault because did she, did he not say this is my sister? And did she not say he is my brother? But ham levavi ubenikion kapa asitizot with an an innocent heart and clean hands, I I did what I did. Meaning, I brought Sarah to the to the to the palace innocently. This was there was nothing premeditated about it. This was innocent because she said, "This is my brother," and he said, "This is my sister." How does God reply to him? Verse six. By Yomer Elafa Elokim, God says to him, "Bechalom in the dream, Gam Anochi Yadati Ki Betam Levavcha Asitazot." I also know that in your heart you have done this innocently. So this isn't premeditated. This is an innocent mistake. Ve'echshoch Gam Anochi Otach Otach and so I also prevented you from sinning against me. Alke Lo Nesatita Ligoa Elecha. And that's why I gave you the opportunity that you cannot touch her. Now, this is very, very profound. I want to just finish up and um, we're going to come back because the message that God gives is a very interesting one and something that we can really, really um, wrap our minds around and learn a lesson about situations where things maybe don't don't turn out the way we want them to turn out. So let's go for that break, and I'll be back shortly. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back. And isn't it that the universe speaks to us? How was the message from uh, Rabbi um, Richard right now? And exactly what we have been saying, that what matters is that we go out and look for opportunities to do good. And yeah, we're in a situation where Avimelech seems to be put in a very compromised situation and it really, truly wasn't his fault. He says it to God and God acknowledges it. And he says, exactly, that is why um, I prevented you from touching her. Now, this subtly is saying something very interesting. Um, while Avimelech was complaining to God that... You know, what have you done? Are you, are you, you've punished me and look what's going on in my palace and in around my city. Are you now going to kill everybody? God was saying, no, I did it in order that you will not come to harm and you would not have touched a married woman. I actually stopped you from sinning. And this is a very, very powerful lesson for us in life. There are times as now in quarantine where we are put in situations that are against our will. We are put in situations where we're, we're uncomfortable, where we didn't sign up for this, where we don't want this. Okay. And we protest. We protest. We put out a protest to God. Um, we put out a protest to our government. We put out a protest and say, we don't, we, we didn't sign up for this. We don't want this. This is not, this was not within, you know, what we wanted to accomplish. Certainly, I can't answer for the government, but certainly from God's perspective, um, God is saying, I know you didn't want this, but I'm putting it here because there's something greater that I want you to achieve and I want you to come around to, um, because of the enforced quarantine I have stuck you in. And this is, this is a very important message for us to take. 
No, nobody signed up for it. Yes, it's very uncomfortable. Yes, we demand that we're released from it. But what we should really be doing is taking this time and asking ourselves the question, if God put me in the situation, why did he and what lessons do I have to learn from it? And perhaps even more so, God was saving us from from something that we don't understand right now. How many times we hear stories of people who are supposed to take a trip. I, I remember there was a famous story of a guy who was supposed to take a trip and um, whatever, 24 hours before he was supposed to fly out to a place, he landed up in a, he landed up in a car accident, he broke his leg. And there he had to go to the hospital, have an operation, and the long and the short was that he never ca- uh, caught the plane. And he was devastated and he was angry and he was mad that he had saved up for this holiday and everything turned against him and he broke his leg. And only just a little while later, um, the plane took off that he was supposedly supposed to be on and there was technical technical difficulties and the plane actually crash landed and everybody in the plane perished. Well, now how does this guy react? From what he believed to be something unbelievably negative, it turned into something unbelievably positive. In fact, God broke his leg so that he shouldn't get on the plane, so that he should save his life. And this is an attitude that one has to have in Judaism all the time, is that when we look at these the, the, these uncomfortable situations and we find them, they're not punishments. They are here in order to make us change direction, one. B, think about what we should be doing differently. C, asking why would God want me and what can I learn and what opportunities are there out there. I think this quarantine is teaching us how to be kinder, how to be more responsible, how to be more patient, how to be less frivolous with our money, how to stop the rat race. There are many, many blessings that this quarantine is is hitting us. And here you can see that God is saying the same thing to to Abimelech. Yes, I brought all this upon you, but in bringing it upon you, I actually stopped more negative happening, and you should be grateful. To sum up, to end up the story, God says to Avimelech, Now go return this man's wife, ki navihu, because he is a prophet, and he will pray on your behalf, and you will live. But if you don't return her, then you will surely die. You and all that is yours. And here, here is the, the, the silver lining to all the goodness God says. Return this man, return this wife, because not only are you returning a wife to a man, you're returning a wife to a man who's a prophet. And what will happen is that he'll pray on your behalf, and not only will he pray and do, uh, you'll be blessed with good things, you will live and you'll get much more because he will, he will advocate on your behalf. Vayashkem Avimelech Baboker, he wakes up in the morning, Avimelech, Vayikra Kol Chol Avadam, he calls all his servants, calls all his people, Vayitaber et Kolat Varim Ha'ele Beosnehim, he says, he tells them the whole story of the dream he has at night, Vayiru Ha'anashim Me'od, the people became very frightened because they knew here they were not messing with something that they should be messing with. God was known as a God that could do anything. Um, they had just still were watching the embers of smoke 
arising from Storm and Gomorrah, and they knew about the flood, and they knew about the Tower of Babel. So they were not, they were, they, they, they were woken up to reality very, very quickly, and they, they did what Abimelech wanted. Vayikra Abimelech la Abraham. Abimelech calls Abraham, Vayomelo, and he says to him, what did you do to us? And, you know, uh, look, look how you made me sin against you. You brought upon me and my nation a terrible guilt about things that really me and my kingdom would, 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 would never have done. Vayomer Abimelech el Avraham, and he says to Avraham, Mara ita ki asita ita davar hazeh. What did you see that you did such a thing? So Abimelech correctly goes to Avraham and says to Avraham, Come on, like this is not fair. Look at this, this, this situation you put me in. If you had said this is my wife, then I wouldn't have sinned. You put me in an uncompromising situation. You put me in in, in a situation that that made me think otherwise, and now you have. You, you, you know, there's this threat of me and my nation um, disappearing. Like, how, how do you explain? How do you explain yourself, Abraham? Vayomer Abraham. Abraham says, "Ki amati rak et yirat elokim babakom hazeh vecharaguni advar ishti." How does Abraham explain himself? He says, "Because when I came to this place, I could see there wasn't the fear of God here, and I knew that if I said I was." Her husband, what would you have done? You would have killed me, and then you would have taken me. So that was the first reason. We're going to go for a quick ad break and then tie it up with the second reason um, that Avimelech, that, that Abraham gives Avimelech. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back, and we need to wrap up, so I'd like to go through the last verses. So number one, Abraham says to Abimelech, I did it because this place has no fear of God, and if I had said I was a husband, that's the mitigating reason, um, you know, um, you would have killed me and you would have taken her. And then he says something more in extricating himself and excusing himself correctly, because Abraham's supposed to be at Sadiq, he's not supposed to lie. So what does he say? Anyway, in truth, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. What? Who was really uh, Sarah? Sarah was Abraham's daughter. In fact, an uncle married a niece. So he said, I didn't even lie when I said that she's my sister because she is my half-sister. She is family, but not not entirely um, a biological sister as we understand it today. And I took her for a wife. And when God makes me wander from my father's home, um, do me this favor. I want you to be with me. Wherever we go, I want you to be with me. So please say that I am your brother. It seems then that Abimelech and and uh, Abraham reconcile. Abimelech takes sheep and cattle and male and female slaves by Yitin Abraham and he gives them to Abraham by Yeshev Lo et Eshet Sarah and he returns Sarah 
his wife by Yomer Avimelech, and Avimelech says, Hine outsi lefanecha, betov beenecha shev, behold, my land is here before you, settle wherever you see fit. Sarah Amara, and he says to Sarah, Hine natati elef kesev leachich, behold, I have given your brother a thousand silver coins, Hine hu lach kasut enan lechol ashe itach, veet kol venochachat. Let it be for you an eye covering for all who are with you and for everyone else. You can now stand tall. Vayit palal Abraham et Elohim and Abraham then prays to God. Vayipa Elohim et Abimelech. Once God receives Abraham's prayer, he heals Abimelech ve'et ishto ve'et ahumaha ve'yeledu and Abimelech's wife and his maidservants and they begin giving birth again. Ki atso atzar Hashem ba'at why? Because God had sealed tight the womb of everybody in Abimelech's house because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So there's reconciliation at the end, and they both explain their situation. And again, last lesson that we can learn from this. Many, many times we find ourselves involved in a, a, a situation where the one person has their conceptions and preconceptions and, and narrative and understanding of, of a situation and the other side has their own narrative and conceptions about it and they generally come to loggerheads. One of the good things Abraham teaches is that one should have dialogue. Um, Avimelech and Abraham had a fantastic dialogue. He went and said, why did you put me in this insidious position when I wouldn't have done it had I known you were a wife? And Abraham went and explained why and also explained why he never lied. And when they both saw the truth, the, the third alternative, which is really the truth of what happened in there, they made up friends. And in fact, Abraham stays, not in Grar, but in this area now for another 26 weeks. We've learned some powerful lessons together. I thank you all out there for listening to 101.9 High FM and uh, I give you my blessing to stay safe, stay healthy and I'll be back at the same time next week. Have a wonderful, wonderful week ahead.